I'm George Knapp, listening to that UFO podcast and having one hell of a good time. Did you know that podcast advertising is way more effective than display advertising? With 67% of listeners remembering brands and 63% making a purchase after hearing them. Whether you want to diversify your ad spend, add a new marketing stream, or test out podcast ads, Zencaster's Creator Network makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters. Zencaster's mission is to make podcast advertisements as easy and accessible to business owners as Google or Facebook. Host-read ads like this are the most effective form of podcast advertising. Zencaster works with podcasters to help create unique to them ad spots that create brand awareness and conversion. Zencaster's Creator Network is the perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favourite creators like me. I've worked with Zencaster now for some time and they've truly put the content creators and the listeners at the heart of what they do. As a huge fan of podcasts myself, and I really mean that, I love podcasts, I often buy products or services that I find useful to me based on those pods that I'm listening to. It supports them and there's usually a good discount to go along with it. So if you're interested in sponsoring this show or another podcast with adverts for your business, go to zen.ai forward slash that UFO pod one. That's the number one. Or click the link in the description and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and I am honoured, delighted and overjoyed to be joined by one of the world's foremost names in the study of UFOs, a gentleman with a master's degree in astrophysics, a PhD in artificial intelligence, an active investor in high technology, an author of some of the best books on the UFO phenomenon available, and today here to look at, among many things, the new edition of Trinity, the best kept secret, he, a book he co-authored with Paola Harris, Mr. Jacques Vallée. Jacques, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I look forward to it. Yeah, listen, let's get straight into it. So just a reminder, folks, in May 2021, I interviewed Paola Harris on the book originally. So for the detailed story, please check that one out in the archive. Having Jacques on, we're going to look at the new information included in the book. However, Jacques, would you please begin? by telling the listeners who may not be familiar with the Trinity case a little bit about it, but also what's brought about a second edition of the book. Um, you're talking about the Trinity case, right? Yeah. Yes. I, I was invited into the case by Paula Harris, who had already done uh, about three years of, of work. She was one of the first people who uh, became aware that the... The witnesses, who by then were in their late 60s and uh, early 70s, were for the first time were talking about what they had seen all the way back in 1945. She was, number one, she was amazed that the secret had been kept, you know, so long because, you know, many witnesses want to be on TV or they want to tell their story or they just feel a, a need to, to tell their story, even if it's not to the media, but to someone like me or, or to a scientist or to uh, an investigator. So that was amazing. And the other thing that was amazing was all the complexity of the case as she got into it. And uh, a couple of other people had interviewed at least one of the 
one of the witnesses, but there was a, also a scientific aspect involved and she invited me into the case to look at that. Actually, there were two. <laughs> one was the object itself, which had very interesting characteristics that had never been seen before. And it wasn't a flying saucer. Remember, the term flying saucer was introduced in 1947, two years later, you know, um, by, by Kenneth Arnold. Uh, there was no US Air Force. Of course, there were airplanes, but they were Army Air Force. The pilots were in Army uniforms. And, and uh, so all the, the things that we imagine going on around the UFO case were not present. You know, there was the, the witnesses were two children uh, who were taking care of their father's ranch. Of course, in those years, you know, all the adults were, uh, unless they were essential for the economy, they were at war still. They were still, you know, in being re repatriated. This was just the, the, the end of the war in Europe. But the war in the Pacific was still going on. So there is a very uh, powerful you know, aspect of this case, which has to do with modern history. The, the other aspect is the, the object itself. I mean, the object itself didn't resemble anything that the witnesses had seen before. It was a large oval, you know, they called it an avocado. Of course, we're in New Mexico, people speak indifferently Spanish or, or English, um, but they came from a, um, a, a Spanish-speaking family. So they, they call it an avocado. It's the size of two trucks. It's heavy. Uh, it has hit a communication tower and then plowed a boulevard down the hill apparently under power. And those are the things that uh, Paola and I wanted to investigate and, and, and really get more of, a, uh, of an understanding of what that entire situation was. The first witness was not the kids. The first witness was a very experienced bomber pilot named Brody, B-R-O-T-H-Y, uh, who was somewhat older than most of the pilots in the Army Air Force. He, he joined as what they called an old man. Uh, if you were over 40 for the Army, you were recruited as an old man category. And uh, I don't think of um, 40 being old, but apparently the Army did in those days because many of the recruits were in their, you know, in, in in their 20s and early 30s. Mm. Uh, he's coming in for a landing with a bomber, uh, coming in for a landing at Alamogordo, which is the air base inside White Sands. White Sands is this very large area where the first atom bomb had been tested, in quotes, um, a few weeks before. The tower at Alamogordo uh, asked him to look at the communication tower that is on that ranch on the, uh, the father's land, you know, of the two kids. And um, 
he circles that tower and sees that the tower has been bent, that the tower is no longer communicating. It's not a military tower, it's right outside, about 20 miles outside the um, White Sands territory where the bomb had been exploded, but it controls the uh, both civilian and military airplanes around the, the classified area, which is still classified at that point. The, the pilot reports that the tower is bent, has lost communication, and he then sees some smoke, reports that there is an, an oval object in the bushes, um, in the, the cactus, and, and the, you know, it's very sparse uh, vegetation there, and uh, thinks that the object is on fire. In fact, the object is not on fire, but the, the vegetation is. And, uh, and then he reports the two kids. He says that he sees two little kids on horseback next to the area where the object has, quote, crashed. Although Paola and I have become convinced that it was a controlled crash, the, uh, based on the descriptions of the object that we get from the two kids. So it's a very unusual case because we can place the three witnesses at the site at the time when the object just crashed. Um, we, we have their testimony of all three of them. Um, and then we have the, the fact that the kids are going to stay there for the next 10 days, watching the recovery. And by the time I got involved uh, with, with, and caught up with, with Paola, um, one of the witnesses, uh, Mr. Baca, uh, had died, but the other one uh, was uh, still very much alive, Mr. Padilla, Jose Padilla. And in fact, he's a, a few years older than I am, and uh, we've become friends as a result of, you know, my frequent trips there to continue the investigation. The, the case is extraordinary because the, again, we can place the witnesses at the site. They were the first responders. Of course, they thought it had to do with the war and they had no, no concept of, you know, UFOs. The term UFO isn't invented yet. It's going to be invented by the U.S. Air Force after 1947. Uh, President Truman is going to create the Air Force to write it into existence as separate from the Army. Two years later, the CIA doesn't exist. The CIA is going to be created into existence again by President Truman two years later. So we're, we're still most... Able, you know, able-bodied Americans are still in uniform. They are scattered between Europe and Japan. The war in Europe is over. Um, Hitler has died. Uh, Stalin is sweeping, is reorganizing the Red Army. Uh, the Red Army, I mean, there's nothing left in Germany. Uh, the, the, the Red Army is sweeping through Manchuria and uh, China, pushing the Japanese out of China. They had invaded uh, China. And then 
getting ready to attack Japan from the north. Japan um, is also going to be attacked by the uh, Navy. Uh, I've read all the books that have come out in the last few years. You know, many of the documents were um, not, not exactly classified, but they were not available to scholars until just a few years ago. It took 50 years to assemble and document all the, um, all the papers from different nations. Um, a lot of it is here at Stanford. I mean, not, not here because I'm in Paris, but uh, it's all, all over in, uh, in Palo Alto. And um, the historians had time to study it and to publish a number of books that I read in preparation for, for writing Trinity. I was stunned when I read and uh, when I realized uh, what had happened. And I realized also why I didn't know after so many years of studying UFOs, I had never heard of that case. The case really wasn't in the literature, except in a couple of footnotes. Uh, one book has a short chapter uh, about it, but essentially it had not been researched at, at the site. And the reason we didn't know about it is that the object was recovered by the Manhattan Project, by the army was you know, ma managing the, the Manhattan Project. And um, it went very likely to Los Alamos. And after that, it would be covered by the atomic secrets and not by the, the normal Pentagon secrets. It was covered under the nuclear secrets. And we know that because there is a, uh, I found a, uh, a, a, a note from an, a, another unrelated investigation. In, in the 50s, there were a number of UFOs seen over Washington that actually went over the forbidden space, over the Pentagon and, and the White House. Um, fighters were sent after them, of, of course, and one fighter was authorized to shoot, shot at a UFO, destroyed part of it. The part that fell down was recovered. And later the United States shared the part of that material. And we can talk about materials later if, if you want to. But uh, they had you know, first uh, shot at that material and they shared it with the Canadians. The Canadians had a UFO project, and they told the Canadians that in the US, this was classified higher than the nuclear bomb. So we know that from you know official channels, not from the witnesses themselves. So the secret was kept, and um, it's still kept. We don't know where the object went. However, we have the witnesses who were there uh, day after day after day, it took 10 days to recover this object and to get it on the truck and to, to clean up the, the site as best as they could and to take everything away. The kids were watching every day. And in, in the book, you know, in, uh, in Trinity, we have reconstructed what happened day after day after day 
including uh, the, the weather conditions and everything else. So we, we know a lot about how that object was recovered. And we have a pretty good idea of where it went. Babbel is one of today's sponsors and they are the best way for you to begin to learn a new language. Immersing yourself in the language of your choice from day one through a whole range of learning styles including podcasts, games and online classes. It's available on desktop or through their app. Babbel's courses are created by didactics experts and focus on real life situations. So if you're holidaying in France and spot a UFO, you can get locals' attention quickly and efficiently. The lessons are as short as 15 minutes and fit into any schedule and can be downloaded to work on offline while on the go. With the help of everyday dialogue exercises and the speech recognition software, learners can practice their pronunciation and regular vocabulary repetition ensures that what is learned is memorised over the long term. I can already hear some of you listeners getting in touch to tell me I should really learn English given my dodgy accent. When you buy a six-month subscription to Babbel, you receive six months extra for free by using the code zen.ai forward slash UFO Babbel. That's U-F-O-B-A-B-B-E-L. Pay for six months and learn for a whole year. Get info and redeem the code at babbel.com forward slash audio. Folks, today is the day you finally decide to make a life-changing decision and learn that new language. Thank you very much for that. That lovely summary of the event i'd love to know long exposition i apologize but you know there were all these factors combining together in that case no there's so much to discuss and i'd love to know firstly one month prior to this this crash or controlled crash there was an atomic test 20 miles away from the site do you think that atomic test in any way affected the environment that caused the crash or do you think it was the potentially a way we we alerted something else to what we were doing? Well, I, you know, I, I can always I can only speculate, you know, about what happened. Um, the it, it was very clear that that object was not human. You know, um, it was at least not not human from you know the United States or. Um, Russia or Germany that might have been spying on White Sands on the Atomic Center. Mm. Um, the why would it crash? I mean, that's a question that people have you know, very often. They say, oh, okay, you know, we can believe that these objects are real, these UFOs are there, but you're telling us about these accidents. I mean, if you came from the other end of the universe, why would you crash on somebody's ranch? You, know, you would master enough of the, the physical characteristics that you could land there. Well, what if it's a gift? What if it's a signal? After all, history has just changed uh, for the first time. Um, you know, mankind has demonstrated mastery of nuclear processes. Many scientists did not believe that you could make an atom bomb uh, here. You know, uh, the, uh, the, the scientists who were gathered there were the elite of uh, the science across around the world. You know, they were Germans. They were, they were uh, 
they were Italians like uh, Fermi, uh, Enrico Fermi. They were Americans, they were Poles, they were people from all over the world who had fled the Nazi. And uh, there were a couple of, of Nobel Prizes and, and uh, the, they demonstrated you know, the, the, the nuclear power. Contrary to what many people think, the, the army did not exactly embrace the idea of using atom bombs. Um, General Eisenhower, General Sherman separately went to see, went to the White House uh, to see the president and told him that the army should not use the bomb. Contrary to, you know, people think, well, you know, the army, the military wanted, you know, more, more power, more bombs, more explosions and so on. And that's why they, they were crazy enough to use this nuclear weapon. The army thought that if the bomb was used, the nature of war was going to change forever. And that the, the war's conflicts would become unmanageable and that the, you know, and can put that in the context of what happens now in Ukraine. I mean, uh, are, are we going to see this? You know, for all that time, the atom bomb has never been used, it has been refined, has been uh, reshaped, it has been experimented with, you know, by, by the US, by Russia, by France, by other countries, but it has never been used in conflict, even though the temptation was probably very, very high. The, so we're back at a time where, you know, for one thing, I, I've learned a lot of history. You know, I, I was born in France when France was essentially, you know, invaded by the Germans. So my, the first five years of my life, I was in occupied France. Uh, I remember the conditions there. I remember what the war was like because our town was a key strategic point and it was attacked, you know, repeatedly. And you know, I, I can place myself in the conditions where people were in the United States in 1945. The President Truman emerges from this with an extraordinary character. I mean, he had to make the decision himself to use a bomb. Um, the, the Pentagon had ordered 500,000 Purple Hearts in anticipation of the battle in Japan that was coming up, where the, the Russians would invade from the north and we would supply them with the American fleet and the American Air Force. The the Navy had 100 aircraft carriers in the Pacific. Many of them were just old ships where the deck had been flattened so that they could put airplanes, you know, but the, the, the force was extraordinary. And Japan had amassed a, a million men in the north of Japan behind huge fortifications. Uh, President Truman felt that he could not allow that many young Americans to die. And he allowed the two bombs to be used at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 
So that's the context. Now, as you know, your question is, what was that UFO doing crashing on that ranch, you know, 20 miles from the place where the atom bomb had in a, in a forbidden area? Now, nobody saw it coming. I mean, it wasn't on radar as far as we know. It came out of nowhere, hit that tower, and crashed on that ranch where it was available for the army to come and retrieve it. Is that a signal? I, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, I'm strongly tempted to, to say somebody else was, after all, when a planet has a civilization on it, and that civilization develops the atom bomb, um, you know, there, if there are other forms of life around, um, that might warrant an intervention, an, an intervention where there was a demonstration that there was something even more powerful than the atom bomb, because the kids are going to be watching. And again, uh, we've reconstructed, Paola and I, what happened day after day. There is a point where the, the kids can get close to the object. The, the beings that were seen inside the object have been taken away or they have moved away at night. We don't know what happened to them, but the object is there and it's open. The father of the kids goes there with a, uh, a New Mexico uh, policeman, state police. Uh, they tell the kids not never to talk about this. They say, this is not for our family. This is not for you to talk about. This is for the army and you know, this is for the Pentagon. You don't talk about that to your friends. Okay? And they will follow that for the rest of their life. Uh, you know, Roswell is going to happen two years later. They don't come up at the time of Roswell to say, look, look, we, you know, we saw something too. The, uh, the case remained secret on the side of the kids, and it remained secret on the side of Project Manhattan that morphed into the Atomic Energy Commission. We also know that because uh, Remy Baca is going to grow up to be a businessman in the state of Washington, and he's going to work on the political side with Dixie Lee Ray governor of Washington. Dixie Lee Ray was a very smart woman. She was a physicist. She was she ran for governor of Washington, was elected as governor of Washington, and then later was director of the Atomic Energy Commission, which is now has morphed into the Department of Energy, which has its own clearances about nuclear matters. Um, during her re-election, she talks with Remy Baca, who is going to energize the, the, the Spanish-speaking community in Washington to vote for her. And the, so they're working together on the, on the campaign to get her elected governor. And she knows uh, what he has seen as a kid. She goes to a safe and shows him the report. Of course, she's, he's not allowed to keep it or to read it. But she wants him to know that there is a report about the object that was recovered at the at the ranch, and that uh, that, that object that he that he saw. 
So, you know, I, again, I, you know, I, I try to think as a scientist and not jump to conclusions or make up hypotheses because you can spend the rest of your life making up hypotheses. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a big universe out there uh, with billions and billions of stars, as, uh, as Carl Sagan said. So uh, it's not speculation is useless. I mean, you have to deal with the fact. Um, the fact is that that thing crash landed under power. The kids are going to look at it very carefully. Uh, Mr. Padilla is going to go inside, gave me a very good description, and I wanted the dimensions and everything else. I wanted to know if the floor was flat. I wanted to know something about the materials. I mean, the things that, you know, a good investigator would want to know. Mm. And um, the space for an engine was underneath the, the egg-shaped object, the avocado, which was the size of two trucks, two fairly large trucks, 15 feet high. And the under the floor, there would have been two and a half feet of space over maybe five feet long. That space is closed. And this is the bottom of the, uh, of the craft that has, you know, pushed the, the dirt all the way down the hill, okay? It's, it's scratched, but it's not broken. There is no opening there. There is no propeller and there is no jet and there is nothing to see. That's where a propulsion system would be. What kind of a propulsion system can we think of that would fit in that space? And what would take you, you know, potentially would take you to outer space. I mean, at this point, we have no idea. Of course, you know, the when it was taken to Los Alamos, I, I assume that scientists have looked at it. It's not obvious to me that we have made any progress in finding the key because when, you know, uh, last week I was watching our most modern rocket going up and it was going up with essentially, you know, classic propellant. Uh, so we certainly don't have the mastery of anything approaching um, anti-gravity that could take us into space. We may be able to use forms of manipulated gravity once we're in, in orbit, you know, far from the earth where a small push could get you to accelerate and so on. I mean, you know, I've looked at, actually, I've looked at proposals for companies that propose to do that, and they can demonstrate something along those lines, maybe. And I've, I've looked at those business plans as, as a inv potential investor, but there is nothing like, you know, what we know the, the UFOs are doing. You've beautifully captured a very horrific time in human history talking about the the 40s through to the the war the end of the war the the bombing of hiroshima and nagasaki you've mentioned was the the only two times in history atomic weapons have been used in the act of warfare however in the decades preceding those events the the testing of atomic weapons has happened over and over and over again it would seem if if these were warnings, 
we've not listened to the warnings as a species and continue to stockpile the weapons. And as of now, we luckily, thank God, haven't used them in a warfare setting and hopefully that never happens. But how do you see the phenomenon's continued presence through the decades? Are we still being observed because of this continued stockpiling and testing of weapons above ground, under the water and, and underground as well? Well, it's tempting to uh, speculate that there there is another form of life that's watching over us. Uh, hopefully, they are friendly. Um, so far, most of the encounters that I know about have have been um, have not taken the form of an attack except for a, a, a group of cases where the witnesses were harmed, either by proximity to an object or, in some cases, direct energy from the object, you know, affecting them, okay? And I'm familiar with that because it's part of the, the databases that we've built. The... the you know, the, the, the bomb, um, if you read the history books, they say that there was a test at Trinity of an atomic bomb and that it worked and that uh, encouraged then the, the, the army to uh, go on and, and drop two bombs on Japan. Well, that's, you know, that's, uh, that's true. But you cannot really test an atom bomb. You know, either it works or it doesn't. Um, and when uh, this was a full-scale plutonium bomb, it was equivalent in power to the one that essentially vaporized Nagasaki. Okay? Uh, a lot of the plutonium was not um, burned uh, or part of the explosion, and it fell on the entire area. And when, you know, we found new witnesses, when we talked to them about what happened to their family at that point and what they what they saw in terms of, you know, residue or objects or evidence of, of the, the, the landing of the craft, the first thing they do is to tell us about the devastation in New Mexico. And with, you know, they pull out pictures of the kids who died when they were 18 of radiation injuries or, or radiation poisoning. They, they tell us why, you know, we, they, we understand why there was a secret until they blew up the bomb and could verify it worked. Enrico Fermi, who was there, did a quick calculation and saw that the explosion was four times more powerful than they had calculated, which in atomic physics isn't bad you know, uh, in, in terms of solving the equations. But the fact is it was a huge explosion. And the wind then took the residue of the plutonium and the radioactive cloud went over the area where the kids and their family were in that ranch. Now, a month later, this thing lands there. It's practically intact. It, you know, you're tempted to think that this was a gift. 
that this was a demonstration. You think you're smart, you know, you ex you've mastered atomic energy on Earth for the first time in, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, you've gotten to that point. Now, look at this. You know, so it's tempting to, to think of it in those terms. However, you know, in the last 40 years, we've gone to the edge of nuclear conflict three times, by, mostly by accident. We don't know about the Russian side, but we know that we did. I mean, we know that there were, there was one time when the strategic command was in the air. Um, so, um, with with instructions, I mean, on the way to bombing uh, Russia, uh, based on false signals and false false uh, uh, computer programs that. Uh, uh, had thought that they had detected an attack. So, so much for artificial intelligence. And, yeah, so, uh, that is very sobering, but UFOs didn't intervene. You know, there was no intervention to stop the B-52s. So, uh, what does that mean? Well, it, it means that we'll have to be responsible with what we do with... Um, what we, you know, what we develop. I was amazed by some of the things I learned. Paula and I went to the test site when it was open. It, you know, they open it twice a year, and I highly recommend going there uh, because you, you, you get it. I mean, you, you get the scale of things. You get an instant lesson in in modern history. But there is a, a little brochure that they, they, they sell, which is an army brochure about the history of the site. When they did that explosion, which was not a test, I mean, it's a test in the sense that they hadn't done it before. But a test in physics, you know, is you, 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 you take a, a, a small glass or something and you put something in it and you, you watch a reaction. And if the reaction works, then you do it at a larger scale, and then you get a patent and so on. Uh, this there was no way to to test the bomb other than blow up a full scale bomb. They realized when they looked at the the destruction of a radioactivity in New Mexico, which they could see pretty much right away, that radioactivity isn't the main purpose of having the bomb. The, the main purpose of having the bomb is to is a very, very high millions of degrees of heat and a, a wind that will destroy any construction or any, you know. And the fact that it, it leaves a radioactive trace is, is a secondary thing. Uh, of course, it's going to destroy life, but that's not, that's not really the point. I mean, at that point, you've destroyed what you wanted to destroy on a large scale. So, the, and I don't think the Japanese know that, but the two bombs that were taken by the Enola Gay and the other airplanes over to Japan were reset so that they did not explode at ground level as they did in New Mexico. They blew up the bombs at 2,000 feet in the air 
um, 2,000 meters in the air, so that the, the, the radioactivity would be minimized at, at the ground level. And again, I don't think the Japanese know that. The, all, the, all those things, I mean, you have to go into details when you do that kind of investigation. It's taken us, you know, in the case, uh, in my case, four years, for Paola, seven years. And uh, we're still finding details about artifacts, about special special things that were retrieved from the avocado. We still find witnesses who came in later and remembered what conditions were there. And so uh, I think we're emerging with quite a, uh, quite a lesson in how to do that kind of investigation and how to deal with the, the witnesses and how to deal with the the human side of that, and also the physics. Uh, I mean, how was that thing built uh, to to be able to to perform all these? Uh, the the one time when I had an argument with Paola was um, I wanted to go back and interview Mr. Padilla about exactly what kind of truck the army had brought to the site to recover what they called an experimental weather balloon, okay? Um, so we, we know it's not the weather balloon, uh, it's, it's not an experimental weather balloon, but the, um, the uh, you know, a, an officer went to the home of Mr. Padilla's father, Faustino Padilla, who owned the ranch, uh, was uh, operating the ranch and uh, told him that, um, speaking Spanish, uh, we're going to need to cut your fence to build a gate. And uh, Faustino says, why do you need to? I mean, I have a perfect good gate for the cattle trucks. You know, the cattle goes in and out and you can use that. Um, the, the, the army guy says, no, uh, we're going to have to bring a big truck. And uh, Mr. Padilla described to me the truck they brought was one of those huge army trucks that can carry two tanks on what they call a low boy, which is a platform they can lower behind the tractor of, you know, of the truck. Um, that, that truck was enormous. And they cut, I've seen where they cut the gate. Uh, I've, uh, Mr. Padilla took me there and, uh, you know, there was a large thing and then they had to build a road all the way to where the object was. And they had to bring a crane to lift it and put it on the low boy and, and drive away with it. So that was quite an operation. It took 10 days. And we've reconstructed what happened, you know, each one of those 10 days. Now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Day to day, life comes at you fast and like anyone I can get stuck focusing on problems rather than looking for solutions whether that's in my professional 9 to 5 on the podcast or even just as a parent it can be tough to train your brain to think differently but it is possible there is no better time to start making a change than today and when you finally learn to find your own solutions there is no better feeling a therapist can help you become a better problem solver making it easier to accomplish those goals you've been struggling to 
for many, using BetterHelp has allowed them to unload stress, heal emotional scars, or even help with anxiety and depression. For me, the flexibility of being able to access online help through messaging on the app or even voice or video calls is a win, not to mention it's convenient and affordable. All you need to do is fill in a very brief survey and BetterHelp will match you with a therapist that suits your needs. You can of course swap your therapist at any time. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash that UFO today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com forward slash that UFO. The, the research in the book is, is fantastic. It's thorough. It's detailed, and like you say, there are many examples that are very, very well explained. Um, I want to read a quote from Christopher Mellon, who many folks will know as the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defence for the United States. He called the data within the book, fresh reason to believe that our government is concealing physical proof of alien technology. Read the book, and if persuaded, join the millions of Americans seeking a straight answer. Jacques, I, I want to know, what do you hope this release of the second edition of the book adds to the overall UFO conversation? So, um, you know, I'm, I'm basically a, an information scientist by training, uh, although the last uh, 20 years or so I've been investing in technical, in high technology companies. Um, the... Over the years, I've compiled a number of databases looking for the best cases, but also looking for models of not just one case at a time, but looking for models of um, behavior of of the different types of craft, essentially, and applying AI to that mass of data. Um, as part of the ATIP program or the BAS program, the Bigelow Aerospace uh, program, um, I, I was uh, in charge of building the, the database that has now gone on to other sites. And as you may know, the project is still classified or the results of the project are still classified. There are they are, you know, certainly the, the Trinity case and two other cases emerge as the best source of information we have about the craft themselves, and the mechanics and the physics and, and all of that. And here, you know, we ended up building that data warehouse and was really a series of databases we ended up with 240,000 cases from all over the world. One thing that worries me about what's going on now, as far as I can tell what's going on now, uh, after congressional review and what the Pentagon is doing, is that they are focusing entirely on military cases. Now, military cases are very good because the military has sensors and you know uh, special cameras and radar and so on, but it's only less than 10% of the database. The other 90% are farmers in their field and, uh, you know, people fishing and people and kids running around in the countryside who see things for a long time that 
puzzle them and we get a lot of data from that. So I'm, I'm worried about the fact that we're going to rush too quickly based on a few cases. Now, the, the Nimitz case is extraordinary. Okay? It's extraordinary because it happens over you know, a number of ships that are full of electronics and designed to, you know, to track things uh, over the ocean and all the way to space. So uh, with very advanced radars and very advanced cameras, very advanced infrared, and, and pilots who are highly trained and, you know, and, and, and extraordinary planes. So uh, you would think that those cases would be even better than what we have with Trinity in terms of finding out what the technology is. But again, that's one case as good as it is. And it's under the constraints of the military, which means much of the data is still secret. We haven't had access to it. Remember in the case of the Nimitz, there was a plane that landed on the deck. Two guys came out, spoke to the, you know, to the commanding uh, group, took the data from the radars and flew off. We don't know who they were. Okay, We don't know where they went. Okay. So we can speculate based on the data, which is very good from the pilots, you know, and, and uh, to some extent from the radar people who can describe what they saw on their screen. But that's not the way you do physics. Okay. And in physics, you don't want to work on half of the problem. You want to have the whole problem. So um, my, you know, my training is to look at patterns of things, not just one thing at a time. There are people who are much better than I am at looking at one case at a time, doing the investigation, getting the science data. There are three cases that I go into in great detail in Trinity. There is the, the, the case we've just talked about at, at the test site. What about Socorro? Socorro is eight miles due north of this case. In Socorro, 1964, Lonnie Zamora, an highway patrolman from New Mexico, sees an object that um, first he thinks there is an explosion. So he drives into the desert, which I've done. And it's, uh, it's, the conditions haven't changed very much. It's still pretty rough terrain. Um, and he comes out. Uh, in front of an object that has landed in a gully with an extraordinary landing gear that's adaptable to the terrain, which is not flat. Um, and there are two creatures there. The object is oval, pretty much like the one in Trinity, it's a little bit smaller. There are two creatures there that match the description of the creatures at Trinity. The creatures at Trinity were about the size of the kids. The kids go up to thinking that they are going to help a, a crew that has crashed on their land. They quickly, they get to 200 feet. Then they realize these are not quite human. They are certainly not, you know, what they expected, not pilots. Uh, they move around in a strange way and the, the kids are afraid and remain frozen there. 
the the case in Socorro, the the two entities that are there are humanoid. They are just like a trinity. They breathe the air. You know, we don't expect an alien to come from Andromeda and breathe the air. I mean, when we go to the moon, we're going to have a breathing equipment. When we go to Mars, we're going to have breathing equipment. We're going to walk in a particular way and so on, adapted to the gravity. We'll have all this gear. Um, in there, the, you know, the two humanoids are looking at Zamora. Um, they, there is apparently some sort of communication, psychic or not, with, with him. They get back into the object somehow. The object has makes a lot of noise, lifts off the ground, stops making any noise, and then moves away. In, in the book, in Trinity, uh, at the time I was working with Dr. Heineck. As you know, Dr. Heineck was sent to investigate Socorro by the Air Force under Project Blue Book. Uh, we were a, a group of us at Northwestern University and the University of Chicago were very interested in the case. We were in communication with him. And when he brought the data he had, we, we formed a group to study the data. So I, I know the data from Socorro very well. Um, we don't really understand the propulsion system of that object. There were a lot of speculations. Again, it was smaller than the one at Trinity, and it went off. And there is one case in my book that in my book with Paola that had never been reported before as the object flew off. It, uh, and it flew off towards the mountains. And it actually, a, a military car was stopped working, was frozen as the object became very bright over the car. That was reported by you know, an officer that case hadn't been published before. So we know a lot. We, we know Socorro wasn't a joke, wasn't a hoax, it wasn't a balloon. We know it was, we know the weight. And in both cases, we end up with a weight of several tons. In Socorro, it was you know, about five tons based on the imprints that were left. Socorro was not investigated by a UFO group or an amateur group, although amateur groups are, have done a very good job of documenting traces and so on. But here there was the state police, there was the FBI that was in town. They had no jurisdiction there, but they helped secure the traces. So we know the traces very well. They photographed the traces. Um, Dr. Heineck saw, saw the, the evidence around the, the site. There was no question there was a very heavy object that landed there in the desert. The third case is in France, August 1st, 1965, a year after Socorro, a farmer that I've met, I've gone to this, that site and I've met several of the, the people involved over a number of days. Um, they, uh, I didn't go there at the time. I, I went there you know, about 15 years ago. They, uh, he saw, an, again, an oval object. There is no disc in any of that. There is no flying saucer in, in this book. He saw an object that had 
landed in the field. Again, Socorro and Valenzuela are not crashes. They are controlled landings, very sophisticated controlled landings. Um, there are two humanoids in front. They breathe our air. They have two eyes. They have small nose, small mouth, just like what the witnesses at Trinity have described. Remember in 64, 65, nobody had heard about Trinity. You know, Trinity only came out about 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago. All that time it had been, the witnesses had been silent. So we have three cases that match. The case in Valençol, the, the witness was highly regarded. He was a businessman and a farmer. He immediately after the case went to the, uh, the police. Uh, the police called the Air Force, uh, the army went there, the customs people went there, and there was, uh, you know, it was investigated by five different agencies of the French government, uh, all looking for a common explanation, you know, some sort of advanced helicopter that came from somewhere. And all of them concluded that the case was unidentified. After extensive investigation, interviews of the witnesses and so on. So we, we're dealing not just with one case, but we're dealing with a pattern of very sophisticated observations of similar objects and similar creatures, similar traces, um, you know, in both in the United States and in Europe. That's what I would like to present to scientists, you know, would like people to look at that combination of factors and start really uh, thinking about it in system terms. So the, the reason I'm here in Paris is that the, the, the French space agency has a, a group that has been studying UFOs officially with an official budget for 40 years which has never happened in the United States. I mean, NASA has never wanted to look at it. Um, the, uh, they have a database which is public. There's, uh, the, the space agency is a civilian agency. It's not, uh, although in our advisory group for the agency, there are representatives of the, the army, the French intelligence and uh, the French air force as well as a weather bureau, as well as a number of sociologists and, and uh, psychologists and so on. So it's, 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 it's a good group. It's a group that has a lot of, uh, lot of years <laughs> studying cases, primarily in France, which is the only jurisdiction. But that's the group that had studied Valençon. And there is a, an international meeting in two weeks that I'm going to in Toulouse. Toulouse is the, you know, the main center for uh, French uh, space uh, research, uh, both uh, Airbus uh, space, uh, the space part of Airbus and the French space agency uh, have headquarters there. And uh, all the scientific labs are there. And six countries are coming, um, including Germany and the UK, 
um, Holland, Italy, and Spain, and we'll be comparing notes about you know the current cases around the world for two or four days. Um, this is not public; it's a closed meeting, but the the proceedings will be published uh, uh, in in time after they are edited. Uh, I'm making a presentation there about Trinity. I would love to ask how do we how do we progress? Is it meetings of scientists and investigators like yourself pushing this subject forward? You mentioned the the Nimitz case, for example, is rich with data and electronic sensors and equipment and probably very clear video and photographs that we haven't yet seen publicly. And then we have cases that are 60 to 80 years old, like Trinity or the, you know, Sirocco case. Where is that middle ground? Is it public or private groups like yourselves, like the Galileo Project, that can really take this conversation forward? Um, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to have lived long enough, you can see my white hair, to, to see the day when uh, the subject is at least acknowledged officially, you know, by both the, the intelligence community, by uh, Harvard, you know, uh, University, by NASA. No, I mean, we'll have a, a spokesperson from NASA at our meeting at, in Toulouse, um, you know, addressing um, uh, by, by video, but addressing the, the scientists there. So this is what Dr. Heineck was hoping to see, you know, what, what Dr. McDonald was hoping to see eventually that the subject would be open, would be that the ridicule would be removed, okay, from it, and that it would be okay for scientists to study UFOs, either on their own time, or as I've, I've done, or in a, you know, funded, as part of a funded project. Uh, Galileo is a funded project, fortunately, but it, it's funded privately. We should get to the point where, you know, we could write a proposal to the National Science Foundation to study at least the civilian cases. There is a case to be made for a classified study to go on. And uh, people, you know, many people in the field dis disagree with me on that. And they say, uh, you know, let, let's everything be open. Um, well, you know, the, the database to which I contributed, um, this was, you know, a big part of uh, the, the budget that was spent uh, under the BAS ATIP uh, project. Um, there were, I probably shouldn't tell you how many people were involved, but it was, you know, a significant group, including translators of Spanish, French, Italian, uh, Russian, so on, uh, to have a, 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 a complete data warehouse, all in English, with a fairly sophisticated structure on which we could build the AI component. The project was stopped before we could get to that, which is a pity, but there are other you know, talented people in computer science who can pick it up under classified, again, under classification and, and move it forward. 
the reason not to disclose it today, I mean, some of the data in it came from civilian sources and it's known, it came from UFON, it came from things like that, uh, from the French files. And it's open. Uh, anybody can, can look at it. Anybody can do what we did, essentially. Uh, except that the structure is somewhat sophisticated in anticipation of doing AI. But uh, there are a number of cases that are medical cases that the, and those cannot be, should not be uh, declassified until they are sanitized, until the, there is a protection of the, of the witnesses, protection of the people who've been injured and so on. Uh, and there is a surprising number of uh, cases where we have biological data, um, either in the form of uh, uh, just, uh, you know, uh, superficial um, effects or in the case of injuries, including cases of uh, death. Uh, although not, uh, not directly in military encounters, but people who died as a result of exposure to something that may have been accidental, well, not necessarily, I don't know, directed energy directed at them. Uh, although, you know, that part of the research hasn't been completed. My hope is, you know, the project was terminated fairly arbitrarily after two years. It was designed to go, go on another three years. If it had gone on another three years, we would have built the, the AI component uh, completely. Now, I've used AI in my own work. Uh, you know, there is a misunderstanding about AI. AI is a very, um, it, it's easy to talk about AI now, and it's very popular and it's very mysterious. AI shouldn't be mysterious. I mean, AI comes in a, a number of a number of, of types of things. You know, my doctorate dissertation was about building an AI program for uh, stellar astronomy uh, to facilitate studies of the stars. And, uh, you know, my professors told me it couldn't be done. Um, I wanted to the system to answer English questions about stars and come out with numerical answers. That was the first time it was done. But it was done as a helper to an astronomer so that an astronomer didn't have to write a program every time, go run the program, which in those days would take 24 hours to get the results. Here you could tell the question in English and you'd get an instant answer like 15.6%. Okay, so um, that was in 1968, okay, 1968. So since then, there have been two more levels of AI development. Uh, now we know we can do that and we know we can do a lot more. But the, the AI, the, the new AI system I wrote in the 80s was just to help me sift through all the UFO reports fairly quickly so that I wouldn't forget a particular pattern that might have explained the data. Again, much of the data can be explained 
Okay, and it's still true today. Uh, so the the first thing we have to do is to concentrate on, you know, take the two hundred sixty thousand cases we we have so far. We can get much more, but what's the point of getting much more if it's junk? So we we know that out of that, maybe only ten percent is really the stuff we should turn over to the labs, to the physicists, to the chemists, to the astronomers, and so on. So the AI should be helping us along the way to narrow it down to those cases that are truly unexplained. Not necessarily unexplainable, but unexplained so far. And, you know, that I, I, what I built in 1985 was pretty good. Uh, it would go over something like 40 or 50 different hypotheses for which the pattern was known that I could apply to the cases I had. And the program would engage in a dialogue with me that was like, have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? Have you thought of that third thing it could be? So that, um, you know, the human mind makes up a hypothesis and then all you see is that hypothesis. But there may be something else going on that has happened in other cases that you forgot. The system is going to forget it. And it, it wasn't a big program. You know, it wasn't uh, very sophisticated, but it remembered every single explanation we had found so far in other cases. And, and then it wouldn't forget it. So again, we should demystify AI. You know, I see people talking about AI is going to be this magical thing that, you know, we, we shouldn't apply a lot of sophisticated AI to that data until we've cleaned it up. And, you know, I can tell you without violating any, you know, any secrecy or any clearance, we didn't get to the point where we could clean it up the way we wanted to clean it up because we only had two years. So if, if there is something to do uh, out there is to review that data very carefully and uh, you know work on it to the point where it could be presented to um, the different scientific disciplines for study. If you could just let us know and let the listeners know, is there anything right now you are working on other than the, the French Space Agency group um, you'd like to let the listeners know about? Well, you know, most of my work is in, in the US. Um, I'm familiar with the, the French files uh, and with, you know, the European files. Uh, th th there, there is a big decision that will have to be made. In, in the US. And at the, at the congressional hearings, uh, I heard two different things from, you know, uh, two of the uh, representatives and uh, people who are there from Congress. Um, I, I heard this is so important that now it should be, uh, it should be, you know, uh, probably continue to be classified, it should be treated with a high priority without, because it could give the United States an advantage in technology, which is true. I also heard 
you know, one one of the uh, congress congressmen say, you know, a lot of the data was gathered outside the United States. We should we should open the doors and the windows and and have a, some sort of global, which we know how to do. I mean, you know, we've been talking to the Russians about nuclear war, you know, for the last seventy years. Now that doesn't mean that we tell them our secrets, and they certainly don't tell us their secrets. But we don't, at some, some level, we don't need the secrets. We, we can talk about, you know, what it, what it all means, because this happens all over the world. The U.S., you know, the, the part of the U.S. that's um, where there are people able to watch the sky is 2% of the planet. Now, what about the other 98%? Wouldn't you want to know what's going on there? Well, lots of things are going on there, and people are intimidated by the U.S., so they don't want to look silly, especially if there are tenured professors at a university somewhere, and they know of a particular case that the U.S. should know about, but they're not going to tell the U.S. because they don't want to be laughed at you know, on on NBC News, okay? So that has prevented all these years. I, I've been one of the few people who sort of was, had access to, you know, had friends in both and colleagues in, in both situations. Um, the, there is a point uh, where I would argue that we need to, be more open and we, we need to have, whether it's under the UN or under some other group that has a proper structure, you know, uh, we, need, we need to talk. We really need to talk. Um, I recognize also, I mean, I had, you know, uh, all of us had the right clearances under the ATIP program. I, I no longer have that clearance, but Obviously, you know, I'm still subject to the same regulations. Um, the people with clearances are not going to violate their clearances when they talk to, you know, the Germans or the Spaniards. But the data itself, a lot of it comes from civilian population. Some of it is in the books that have already been published. So why don't we look at this as scientists? You know, as um, Dr. Loeb at Harvard has started to do, you know, and, and begin to look at the phenomenon as a massive something that has a massive impact on us, you know, on the planet and, and on, on the population. And, uh, you know, do it with the techniques we have already that have never been applied to. What's stopping us? So that's my, you know, the, the, I mean, that's what I emerge with, uh, you know, and I've been working, we have a small group at Stanford, you know, around Dr. Nolan, and I've, I've turned over to Dr. Nolan all the, the trace material I had from different countries, including from France. And, um, you know, we're, we've published one paper uh, already uh, on describing the technology, the methodology of uh, analysis, and uh, we're going to publish more. And um, 
that's the way science works. Well, Jacques, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. You've been very gracious, very generous. Um, and I'll hold you to that and would love to get you back on to answer some of those listener questions in the near future. But thank you for all the work you've done and continue to do. Um, at, your, at your pleasure, sir. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shut out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little Imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. And I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head. And everything was weird and everything was wet. I called up my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And I think I should see because it doesn't really scare me. If you really want to know who I think they be, then I guess you and me and us and we and him and her and that and she and that thing over there and what's that, Jane?
That UFO podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio quality sound, chat and footnotes. All running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more.